May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Our main reading this morning was taken from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 5. And the verse I want to concentrate our attention on in due course is verse 21, which is a verse, of course, much loved by many Christians. But first, I want to say a little bit about the background to the passage. Paul was the founder of the small Christian group in the city of Corinth. The city was a Roman colony. The church was made up of mainly of people who had come to faith from a pagan background. Paul felt a great deal of affection for these believers, but clearly as we read the two letters we have, he was terribly anxious about some of the reports that had been getting about the church. In his first letter, he tries to put them straight on a whole range of matters, from divisions amongst them to sexual immorality to disorder in their meetings to the abuse of the poor members of the congregation at the Lord's Supper. Coming from a pagan background, the Corinthians had a hard time really grasping some pretty basic elements of Christian faith, and so Paul writes to help them and to put them back on the right track. Now by the time we get to Paul's second letter to Corinth, some time has passed and things have moved on. The situation now is that the Corinthians have been visited by some other Christian missionaries who seemingly have scant regard for Paul and Paul finds himself having to defend himself, his calling and his ministry to the Corinthians, who of course he had brought to faith. And as the letter goes on, Paul gets more and more hot under the collar about these people. Eventually he refers to them very sarcastically as super apostles. So in the first few chapters of a second letter, we have Paul talking about the relationship he's had with the Corinthians, stressing all the ways that he and his colleagues have been faithful ministers of Christ, seeking to serve and love the Corinthians. Chapter 5, this defense of his own ministry continues. And we really have to read this morning's passage very much in this context. So, in verse 12, he's comparing himself and his colleagues to the other preachers that the Corinthians have been listening to, who are more concerned with outward appearance. He reassures them in verses 14 and 15 that it's God's love that is his motivating factor and that he's not simply living for himself. In verse 18, he asserts that God has given him and his colleagues the ministry of reconciliation, despite what others might be saying against them. And then in verse 20, he says that they are God's ambassadors through whom God is making an appeal to the Corinthians. Now we often read verse 20 as if it applies to us so that we are God's ambassadors and we think about what that might mean for us. Now as valid and worthwhile as that may be, primarily in the context of the letter, Paul is referring to himself and his missionary colleagues, defending their divinely appointed ambassadorial credentials to the Corinthians in the face of the naysaying of the other opposing Christian leaders. Then we get chapter 6-1. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. In other words, We are working closely with God, so don't reject us and so prove to have received God's grace in vain. And he goes on in the next verse to quote Isaiah in support. Always good to pull out a piece of scripture um, if you're trying to win an argument. The subsequent verses in chapter 6 go on in this vein, strongly showing how Paul and his friends are the true servants of God. So throughout this whole section of the letter, we have Paul vigorously defending himself over against the attack and the bad-mouthing of another another group of uh, Christian leaders. As an aside, let us never think that all was entirely harmonious in the first century Christian communities and that somehow we have a, have a monopoly on Christian disunity. But if this is what this, is, this passage is all about, Paul defending himself and his colleagues, 
What then is happening in verse 21? God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Verse 21 is often talked about as the great exchange. Anybody ever heard that that term? Christ takes on our sin, we take on his righteousness. It's like an exchange of clothes or coats. Christ takes our dirty old coat of sin, he puts it on, and an exchange gives us a new coat of righteousness. And here righteousness is some sort of abstract ethical quality, part of Christ's essence, which we then put on. So we get his righteousness, meaning his goodness, his perfection, and he takes our sin. And traditionally this has been a great cause of celebration amongst Christians. Our dirty rags gone in their place, Christ's very own righteous quality covering us. And I'm sure you can think of a few hymns and choruses you've sung to celebrate that. Except, except I'm not sure that this explanation of the verse fits the context terribly well. Paul is defending carefully and strongly in the previous few chapters, right up to verse 20, his own apostleship, and then resumes this defence in 6.1. But for some reason, we're supposed to think that he stops short to make a rather abstract theological point about the great exchange made at the cross. In the more traditional way of reading this passage, then here's what would be going on. Paul would be saying, Corinthians, we really are God's ambassadors and you need to recognise that. We implore you to hear God's appeal to you through us. Oh, before I go on, On the cross there was a great exchange made, Christ taking our dirty rags of sin and giving us his own righteousness, his own goodness. Now, back to what I was saying. We are working with God, so we appeal to you to hear what we're saying and not to negate the grace that God has given to you. So once we look carefully at the context of the whole passage, I think we're forced to think again about what Paul might be saying in this very important verse 21. And I think there might just be a better way to interpret the verse. But to understand that we need first of all to take a step backwards and to think for a minute or two about the phrase that Paul uses in our verse, the righteousness of God. This is a phrase that Paul uses in both his letters to Corinth and to Rome a few years later. And in fact the righteousness of God might be said to be the overall theme of his lengthy Roman letter. And on top of this phrase, Paul uses the other Greek words that are part of the same family very, very frequently in his letters. Words that we variously translate as just, justice, justified, justify, or right, righteous, righteousness. fact of the matter here is that there's a whole family of Greek words which have the same root, but which in our rich English language we can translate in two different ways. We either use our English Anglo-Saxon background, and so we make use of make right, righteous, righteousness, or we use our Latin background and we use words like just, justify, and justice. But it's the same basic Greek word group that Paul is using. All of which serves to more than slightly muddy the waters when we come to understanding Paul. Because our righteousness language has come to have certain religious overtones making us think of righteousness as an ethical quality, like goodness. But we get a much better sense of what Paul means when we use the justice group of words. So we can equally translate the phrase that Paul uses in verse 21 and elsewhere in his letters as the justice of God. But where does that leave us? Well, where it takes us to is to make us think of God's action to make things just, to make things right. That's what's needed in the world. Fallen and bent out of shape by the power of evil, it needs God to come and fix things, to put things right, to bring God's justice. And that, of course, is exactly what God has done in Christ. God has acted to deal with the power of sin and evil, which 
Christ took upon himself and exhausted so that God might once more reign over God's world and begin the process of transformation, reconciliation and justice. This is what Paul refers to in Romans 1.17. I am convinced, he says, that in the gospel of Jesus the Messiah, the justice of God is revealed. In other words, it's in this way, through Christ's death and resurrection, that God's rectifying, justice-bringing, world-transforming work has been done. We don't have time this morning, but if we were to look at the Old Testament roots of this idea of the righteousness of God, we'd find that it's this idea of the saving, faithful action of the Creator, the covenant God in the world, bringing His justice and peace that Paul takes and applies to what God has done in Christ. It's in the death and resurrection of Christ that God's justice is revealed. God's world-transforming and salvation project comes to realization through what Christ has done. This is the righteousness of God. This is the justice of God. In the death and resurrection of Christ, God was not just saving individuals from their sins. Important, of course, as that is. God was dealing with the problem of evil in the world. And as Colossians 1 tells us, reconciling all things, whether in heaven or on earth, to God's self. God's salvation project includes individual transformation, but it's much, much bigger than that. It has the whole cosmos in its sweep. All things in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And by Christ's death and resurrection, God has reclaimed God's world. God has begun the process of world transformation, of implementing God's victory over all the powers of evil, which will be completed when Jesus returns. So it is to this that the righteousness or the justice of God refers to God putting things right in God's world and renewing the world in peace and justice. Now once we start to see the phrase in this light and that it is not primarily to do with an ethical quality belonging to God that then somehow becomes ours, then the problems that we began to see with verse 21 of 2 Corinthians 5, um, how it fits in with everything before and everything after, those problems begin to disappear. So we might now read our verse like this. For our sake God made the Messiah to be sin, who of course himself knew no sin, so that in him we might become the saving action, the justice of God in the world. What Paul here is saying is that God was in the Messiah Jesus, reconciling the world to God's self. He's given that message to us, his ambassadors, so that we might appeal to the world on God's behalf. Actually, God made Christ to be sin, that is to stand in our place, taking on himself our sin, our unjust actions, so that we might stand in his place, doing what the Messiah was doing, being the justice of God in the world. Which now fits perfectly into the whole context where Paul is defending his ministry. He is God's ambassador, and because Christ stood in his place, he now stands in Christ's place, being a messenger of God's justice in the world. And what Paul says of himself and his fellow missionaries is equally applicable to us. So when he says that we have become the righteousness of God, he's pointing to our mission in the purposes of God. A great exchange has taken place, all right, but perhaps not in the way that we've previously thought of it. Our way of life of self-centeredness, of self-promotion, of injustice, has been taken and dealt with by Christ. A whole orientation of life that negates the image of God that we were supposed to be. And now we are free to fulfill our human calling, to be God's image, to reflect what God is, to be God's saving justice in the world. In the same way that Christ was being the the righteousness of God, 
was being and making God's justice in the world, so we too are called to be that justice. We're to be an expression of God's justice in the world. But what does that mean? What would that look like? What implications does this have for our lives? Because of what God has done in Christ, the reign of evil has been undone and the end is now certain in God's favour. And yet we only have to take a look around us and see the lives scarred by drugs, the persecution of minorities, the acceptable collateral damage to innocent children and women in wars around the globe, including those engaged in by our own country, the injustice of international trade which results in misery for so many. We only have to look around to know that we still live in a terribly unjust world. I've just finished reading Cormac McCarthy's New Country for Old Men. Some of you may have read it or perhaps seen the Coen Brothers' excellent film adaptation. It's an utterly engaging and fascinating examination of one man's despair at the world around him where the drugs trade has brought evil and carnage in a way that he struggles to even understand. And the conclusion the book seems to come to is that The world is bad, it's getting worse, and there's no end in sight. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. But the evil we see around is not, is categorically not the last word. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to God's self. So for those of us who ourselves have been reconciled to God, who are now called to be God's justice in the world, We must live as those who are anticipating the peaceful, just reign of God in the world. And this we do in a thousand different ways, from feeding the hungry, to campaigning and working for an end to modern-day slavery, to working for peace and reconciliation wherever we are needed. Through to engaging in the arts, the world of music, literature, art, all the time declaring by our actions, our insistence on peace and justice, that Jesus is Lord of the world. Chris gave us an example of this earlier on when he talked about his work with autistic children, using his musical talents and his time to augment and enrich the humanity of those children. When I asked Chris to give us a reprise of his talk at the TEDx event a few weeks ago, he wondered if he should change it for a church audience, maybe add a Bible verse or two. And I said, no Chris, you don't need to do that. What you're talking about is thoroughly Christian. It's thoroughly part of being God's justice in the world. Just coming alongside people who need us, playing the role of the accompanist, is sometimes all that it takes. Many of you know that my wife Christine is in India at the moment where she and teams of young people from Northern Ireland are working with children from desperately poor communities. Amongst all the fantastic things that have been coming out of this work, She's had the privilege last week of seeing, through the work of Safara, six bright young people attain scholarships to go to college, something they could never previously have dreamed was possible, so poor and difficult were their circumstances, and something that that will transform their lives and the lives of their communities. Many of you here this morning have been very supportive of this transformative work. It's changing lives and communities. It's being the justice of God in the world. For sure there's a call to action here for all of us. We can't afford to be passive about God's call on our lives to be God's justice in the world. It's like the song from earlier says, when you show me love I don't need your words. Yeah love ain't a thing. Love is a verb. In the end love isn't a feeling or an experience. It's action. Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. 
His call this morning is for us to pray for the kingdom and to orientate our lives to this vision, to bearing witness to the loving justice of God. For Christ to be the righteousness of God, it took everything. It led him to suffering. It led him to Calvary. What might it take for us to be the justice of God in the world? Standing up in order to make things right is rarely easy, whether it's as simple as not laughing in a sexist joke at work or or maybe sadly even in a church context, or whether it's deciding not to take this particular piece of business because somewhere along the line we know it perpetuates some injustice, or whether it's deciding not to spend money on ourselves in, in the way that everybody else does. Hey, it's the latest piece of technology. Everybody's got it. I need it. Because we've better ways to spend our money to bless others. Or whether it's not giving our heart and soul and all the hours God gives to our work because we have family who depend upon us and a whole world that needs us. Or whether it's finally deciding to get involved in this organisation or that organisation which is working to bring God's justice in some unique way. All this and many other things the Holy Spirit might just be reminding you of this morning needs us to begin to imagine a different world. My daughter Gemma, the Reverend Gemma, is a great Dolly Parton fan. Any Dolly Parton fans here this morning? Yes, one or two. She got me to listen last week to a song called Better Day. She said, Dad, it's pure eschatology. Sometime after the service, somebody can tell me what that means. And it seems to me that Dolly has captured for us this sense of a faith that sees beyond the way things are to the way that things will be. Now, we don't know what heaven looks like, but we've seen enough hell right here and now. But when the road is the roughest and the problems are the toughest, or when the times are the hardest and that old sky turned the darkest, you got to keep the faith because I believe there's a better day. There is a better day coming and we need to lift our eyes and see it. There's a different world to imagine. The world that Christ came to transform and which he will transform. And in the face of temptation, the pull of selfishness, and in the face of tyrants and empires and the advertising industry and wasting time in front of the TV, we live in a way that anticipates and demonstrates the justice of God to a needy world. This is our calling. This is our mission, to be the justice of God. Can we let that grip us this morning? Let it transform us so that we in turn might begin transform the world thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven amen